Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct. Thank you so much for joining me here today. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button, that way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here on the podcast every single Wednesday and you're not going to want to miss it. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about a case of betrayal. It is a brutally horrific case and it is one that I'm very interested to hear your opinions on. As you can tell, today we're talking about the solved murder of Joanne Witt. So without further ado, let's jump right on into it today. Joanne Witt was born on January 25th, 1962, and growing up, Joanne came from a good family. Her father was a savvy businessman, and her family was, for all things considered, pretty well off. Now, along with that, Joanne was incredibly smart. She received her master's degree from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo in metallurgy, which is the study of metals and their production. After receiving her master's degree, she moved on to work as an IBM engineer before getting a job in the El Dorado Department of Transportation. Once Joanne had accomplished her dreams and goals in her career, she then knew that she wanted to tackle her next big dream, and that was being a mother. Joanne had dreamed about being a mother for the longest time. Ever since she was a little girl, she had always dreamed of being a mom and having a child and just the perfect family life. So as you can imagine, Joanne was was absolutely over the moon when she found out that she was pregnant and having a daughter. Now, from the beginning of Joanne's pregnancy, she knew that she was going to be a single mother raising her daughter alone. And from all the research I was able to do, it was very unclear on what the status was between Joanne and the father of her daughter. It was not very clear, you know, what their status was, where they met, you know, how their relationship transpired. But what was clear from very early on was that this was the journey that Joanne was going to be taking on her own. But luckily, everyone in Joanne's life, her family, her friends, everyone really rallied around her to make her feel as supported as possible. Most notably, her family, her dad, her brother, everyone really, really supported her through this. And then on November 18th of 1994, Joanne had her daughter named Tyler Witt. When Tyler was born, it was truly the best moment of Joanne's life. Everyone who knew Joanne said that she was glowing, she was so happy, and she was so excited to take on this role of being a mom. Now, Joanne definitely leaned on her family to help when she needed to in order to maintain a work-life balance. She was a single mom who needed to go to work and pay the bills and do all of the things, and luckily, she was able to have the support of her family to help take care of Tyler when she needed to. But regardless of all of her career accomplishments, Joanne's greatest accomplishment was being Tyler's mom. Tyler was her absolute world. However, there were some moments where times weren't so great. 
When Tyler was five years old, Joanne had actually lost custody of her daughter for about six months after it was reported that Joanne had physically assaulted Tyler. However, she did regain custody after those six months. Now, there isn't much detail out there when I was doing my research in regards to what exactly this incident was and how it occurred. However, we do know that Joanne did lose custody for a short period of time. However, again, after those six months, she did regain it. And once Joanne did get Tyler back, she really dedicated herself to being the best mom she could be for Tyler. Joanne and Tyler lived in a beautiful five-bedroom home with a pool. They went on lots of vacations together. They went to Jamaica. They went to Mexico. And Tyler was doing all of these extracurricular activities. She was doing piano lessons. She was hanging out with her friends. She had different sports activities she was a part of. And from the outside looking in, anyone would say that Tyler's childhood was idyllic to say the least. Joanne and Tyler were living in El Dorado Hills in California, which is known to be a quaint community. It's very safe, it's upscale, and Joanne lived in one of the nicest homes in a gated neighborhood, so they were doing very well for themselves. Now, as Tyler was growing into her teenage years, Joanne and Tyler began having the very normal mother-daughter arguments, the mother-daughter tension, the disagreements, but again, it was nothing out of the ordinary. Tyler liked spending time at the local teen center where she had made a lot of friends and her friends described her as very mature for her age. She was, you know, 12, 13, hanging out with 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds at this local teen center. And many of the teenagers at this center did say that they were surprised to see someone like Tyler hanging out at one of these local spots. Tyler, as I have said, has come from a very upscale background, an upscale community, living in a very nice home. She had all of the things that she could ever possibly want. So it was surprising for them to see someone like Tyler join in on where they would hang out. For all things considered, and for a lack of a better term, Tyler was not the poster child for these local teen centers. And so it was surprising to see someone like her there. However, everyone said that she was very mature, she was very kind, and she just wanted to fit in. She just wanted to make friends, and that's exactly what she did. Tyler's friends describe her as being someone who had a larger-than-life personality. She was someone who was charming, someone who was magnetic, and someone who people gravitated towards, much like her mom, Joanne. So this now takes us to June 12th, 2009. Now, June 12th was a Friday, and surprisingly, Joanne did not show up for work this day. Now, this was extremely unlike her. Joanne was always very responsible. She was always very punctual, always on time. And if she was to ever miss a day of work or show up late, she would always call ahead. And just to prove to you how unlike Joanne this behavior was, Joanne's supervisor even went to her home and knocked on the door that Friday to make sure that Joanne was okay because that is how unlike her it was to just not show for work one day. Now the supervisor arrived to her home and knocked on the door however he didn't get an answer and when he didn't get an answer he thought it was very likely that Joanne had you know lost track of time was out spending time with Tyler and so he figured that maybe they were out on a trip somewhere 
and he could get in touch with Joanne later that day or in the days to follow. So he wasn't too concerned about it. So that was on Friday the 12th. However, when that following Monday rolled around and Joanne still had not shown up for work, that is when her supervisor contacted authorities and asked them to conduct a welfare check on Joanne. Now, when police arrived to the home and knocked on the door, they also got no answer. They tried to open several of the doors, however, they were locked, and there was no evidence of any forced entry or robbery. They started looking in through the windows of the home. Nothing looked out of place, nothing looked suspicious. But one thing that did strike them as odd was the fact that Joanne's cars were still in the garage. Now, ultimately, police were able to get into the house through a side door of the home that was unlocked and when they did they found everything to be normal like i said nothing was out of place nothing was ransacked it didn't appear that there had been any disturbance in the home whatsoever that was until they walked up the stairs and into joanne's master bedroom and that is when they discovered joanne laying partially on her bed with her body covered by a blanket when they uncovered the blanket they saw the massive amount of blood that had covered joanne's body as well as seeped into the mattress and blankets it was clear to authorities that Joanne had been stabbed as there were blade-sized holes in her shirt and stab wounds all over her body, specifically on her neck and shoulder area. Whoever did this to Joanne also attempted to slit her throat, and that gaping injury was her fatal wound. Right off the bat, police were absolutely stunned with the brutality of Joanne's murder. This was not something that typically occurred in El Dorado, and police who were at the crime scene said that this was the most violent homicide that they had seen in their career. There was blood all over Joanne's room. It was on the nightstands. It was on the TV remote. It was on the bed frame. It was everywhere. The autopsy confirmed that the stab wounds were so deep into Joanne's body that they actually hit Joanne's bones. There were 20 stab wounds in total, and some of these were defense wounds that showed that Joanne fought for her life until the very end. It was clear to police right off the bat that this was a crime of passion. To stab someone 20 times so deeply and so viciously, this had to be someone who wanted to hurt Joanne. Now again, when looking at the house, Joanne's room was the only part of the house that was out of the ordinary and disrupted. They went into the kitchen to see if they could find the large knife that was used to kill Joanne, and what they did find was a missing knife out of the butcher block that had seemed to be laying on a drying rack right next to the sink. Now, even though there was no blood present on that knife, police still collected it as evidence. Now, while police were at Joanne's home processing the scene and collecting evidence, that is when a police officer walked up to a detective and told this detective that he had been at this house just several days prior. He went on to say that just a couple days prior to Joanne's murder, Joanne had reported that her daughter Tyler was a victim of statutory rape. Now, this brought up two questions to police at this point. First being, they wanted to know the details of what had happened at this house several days prior. But the second being, where is Tyler? 
Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Now, several days before the murder, Joanne ended up filing a charge on 19-year-old Stephen Culver for sleeping with her daughter, Tyler, who was only 14 years old at the time. In December of 2008, Tyler and some of her friends at the teen center had been spending time at a local coffee shop, and it was through her friends that she met Stephen Culver. Stephen, who, like I said, was 19 years old, also went by the nickname Boston. Apparently, Stephen's whole friend group had nicknames for each other. No one really went by their real name. And for whatever reason, Stephen's was Boston. No one really knows why, but that is what everyone called him. Now, growing up, Stephen definitely had some family troubles. He was living in and out of his car at the time that he had met Tyler. He was living on friends' couches. He didn't really have any stability in his life. However, him and Tyler gravitated towards each other. Tyler and Steven became friends in late 2008, early 2009, and by February of 2009, that is when the two of them started dating and became sexually active. Now, around this time, Steven was also looking for a place to live, and Tyler suggested that Steven move in with her and her mom. Now, again, Joanne and Tyler were living in this five-bedroom house. It was just the two of them, and Tyler figured that there was plenty of room for Stephen. Joanne definitely shut this idea down very quickly. She did not feel comfortable with a 19-year-old boy living in her house with her 14-year-old daughter. However, Tyler then told her mom that she had nothing to worry about. There was not going to be any inappropriate relationship going on because Stephen was gay, which was obviously a lie, but Joanne didn't know that at the time. Now, when Joanne heard that Stephen was gay, she was definitely more open to the idea of him moving in and ultimately allowed it. You know, Tyler had painted this picture that Stephen was having trouble at home. He was struggling. He was trying to get his life back together. He was a college student who was also the manager of a Rubio's Mexican restaurant. And Joanne wanted to help. She wanted to be the one to help get Stephen back on his feet and really bring him in when he had no one else. And in in the beginning of Stephen living with them, things seemed to be going very smoothly. Joanne would tell her friends that Stephen was the perfect housemate. He would take out the trash, he would pick up after himself, he helped out around the house. The three of them, meaning Joanne, Tyler, and Stephen, would often go out to dinner together, so everything seemed to be going great. That was until May 14th, 2009. Joanne was walking down the hallway and noticed that Tyler Tyler was not in her bedroom and that Stephen's bedroom door was shut. 
She started searching all throughout the house for Tyler and couldn't find her, so ultimately, she went up to Stephen's room and knocked on the door. When Stephen answered the door, he did not have a shirt on, and when asking where Tyler was, Stephen claimed he didn't know. He said that he hadn't seen her, wasn't sure where she was. However, out of the corner of Joanne's eye, she was able to see that Stephen's closet was cracked open. Now, call it mother's intuition, call it just a gut feeling, but Joanne knew that Tyler was in Stephen's room. She marched right past Stephen and opened up the closet door, and that is when she found Tyler hiding in the closet undressed. Now, immediately and understandably so, Joanne was enraged. She told Stephen that he needed to move out immediately, and after moving out, Joanne called to file a statutory rape charge against Stephen. However, this was very hard to do considering that Tyler was denying any sexual relationship with Stephen. She was claiming it never happened. Her mom is making the whole thing up, which as you can imagine, also caused a major strain in Tyler and Joanne's relationship. Tyler thought her mom was being a helicopter parent, that she was being controlling, that she didn't understand, and it really caused a very big wedge between the two of them. Now, when sitting down with police, Tyler told them that Stephen was like an older brother to her, but that over time, she did begin to develop feelings. Tyler claimed that she tried to get rid of these feelings by reminding herself that Stephen was five years older than she was, and it was illegal. Tyler even denied ever being in Stephen's room, ever being in the closet. She claimed that Joanne had made the entire scenario up just because she wanted a reason to get Stephen out of the house. And ultimately, because there was no evidence to prove that the two of them did have any sexual relations with each other, and there also was no confession, police couldn't do anything about it at the time. Now, that was on May 14th. Now we move to three days later on May 17th, and this is when Joanne reports Tyler missing for the first time. When the police arrived to Joanne's house, Joanne filled them in on what had been transpiring between Stephen and Tyler over the last several days. However, ultimately, this seemed to be slightly a false alarm because police called Tyler and she told them that there was nothing to be worried about because she was simply at her friend's house. Now, police drove over to Tyler's friend's house and picked her up and brought her home. And during that car ride, Tyler again insisted to police that there was no sexual relationship with Stephen and that her mom was making something out of nothing. So now this brings us to June 10th of 2009, so just several days before the murder. And on June 10th, Joanne had gotten a hold of Tyler's diary while Tyler was out of the house. Now, in the diary, Tyler wrote about her relationship with Stephen and wrote about the two of them having sex. She detailed everything in this diary, and it was clear to Joanne that this was the smoking gun that she needed in order to put Stephen away. It was very clear to Joanne that Tyler and Stephen were not just going to stop seeing each other. Both of them were too tied up in this mess. She felt like her daughter was being manipulated. She felt like Stephen was praying and grooming her daughter and she didn't know what else to do at this point. What Stephen was doing with Tyler was illegal. As simple as that. 
So when Joanne gets a hold of this diary, she then decides that she is going to bring this to the police, and she does so on Thursday, June 11th. So this is the day before Joanne does not show up for work on Friday, June 12th. So on June 11th, she hands the diary over to authorities, and she also tells Tyler that she did this. And as you can imagine, Tyler was livid. She had freaked out on her mom, Joanne. She started yelling and screaming and told her mom that she didn't understand. She ran out of the house to get fresh air before ultimately coming back, and she was fuming at Joanne. Now, later that night, Joanne did apologize to Tyler for invading her privacy. However, at that point, the damage had already been done, and Tyler did not seem phased by the apology at all. It did not matter to her. She felt like what was done was done, and her mom had already done too much damage that was unreversible. Now, I want to jump back in to the murder investigation for a moment. At this point, it is June 16th. It is one day after Joanne's body had been discovered. And at this point, like I had mentioned earlier, police are now raised with the question of where is Tyler. They were seriously worried for Tyler's safety. They were concerned that since Tyler was nowhere to be found, there was a great possibility that she was in grave danger. So now they have a whole additional part of this case. They have the part of the case, which is the homicide investigation, and now they have a potential kidnapping investigation as well, because they were very worried that wherever Tyler was, she was being held against her will. So with all this information about Tyler and Steven that detectives had now been made aware of, police were theorizing that wherever Tyler was, it was a great possibility that she was with Steven as well. They definitely theorized that Steven was holding Tyler against her will. Steven had kidnapped Tyler and they wanted to find her as soon as possible for the sake of her own safety. So they ended up putting out an alert for Steven's car. And it was that same day on June 16th, that Stephen's car was found at an impound lot in San Francisco. So immediately detectives drove over to Stephen's car, they searched through it, and that is when they discover a journal. Now, it was very clear when police started reading through this journal that this journal belonged to Steven. In the journal, he goes into great detail about how Joanne is the problem in his life and how he must get rid of her. He writes things like, quote, I love Tyler Goddess Marie Witt with all my heart. I love you more than you can possibly imagine. I will bear internal damnation just to be with her end quote. Now, as you can imagine, this journal only magnified police's worry for Tyler and her safety. They had really painted this picture of Stephen being obsessed with Tyler and doing anything that he possibly could to be with her, even if that meant murdering her own mother. Now, police learned from Stephen's friends after speaking to them that Stephen had a massive collection of weapons. He had swords, he had brass knuckles, he had knives, So he definitely had the equipment to carry out something like this, but not only that. Police were not just told that Stephen had weapons. They were also told that Stephen had confessed to his friends that he had murdered Joanne. Police spoke with one of Stephen's friends named Matthew, and Matthew claimed that Stephen told him that he had stabbed Joanne in the stomach. 
Matthew claimed that at first he did not believe what Stephen was saying. That was until Stephen pulled out the knife that he claimed to be the murder weapon and the knife itself was covered in what appeared to be blood. Matthew also told police that Stephen had dyed his hair black, changing his appearance because his hair was originally blonde. But again, that was not all. Matthew also told police that Stephen was with Tyler. However, she was not in any danger at all. Tyler was not being held against her will. Tyler was not kidnapped. Tyler was willingly with Stephen and knew everything in regards to her mom's murder. The plan was that the two of them were going to murder Joanne and then go to San Francisco together to commit suicide. Now, when police got this information, it completely changed their perspective because as I've been saying, they have been looking at this case from the perspective of Tyler is in danger, Tyler is in trouble, Tyler doesn't know what's going on, Tyler's being held against her will. However, Tyler is not the victim anymore. Police are now looking at Tyler as a suspect in her own mother's murder. Now, since Stephen's car was found at an impound lot in San Francisco, they were worried that it was too late. Police thought that Stephen and Tyler could already have followed through with their suicide pact. But luckily, they learned that Stephen and Tyler were not the most well-versed criminals because they had used a credit card to pay for a room at a Holiday Inn together in San Francisco. So police raced over to the hotel and entered into the hotel room, and the room itself was a mess. There was empty food cans everywhere, there was ramen, red velvet cake, cereal, clothes were all over the floor, papers were everywhere, they found marijuana, cocaine, ecstasy, and they also found packages of rat poison in the room that were open, and a note that was left by the TV that said that their bodies would be found by the beach. Now, upon further investigation, police realized that it did not appear as if anyone had ingested the rat poison and that this was all purely staged just to make it appear that Stephen and Tyler were dead so police would stop their investigation and stop looking for them. But luckily, there was an APB that went out on Stephen and Tyler several days prior, so police knew to be on the lookout for Tyler and Stephen in the San Francisco area, and a patrol officer actually reported seeing them outside of a strip mall and contacted the detectives immediately. Now, police arrived on the scene very, very promptly and luckily found both Stephen and Tyler alive. Both of them had dyed their hair darker, Tyler's, which was was completely blonde was now a very dark brown and the San Bruno Police Department took them into custody. Tyler and Steven were examined to make sure that they were medically okay and when those tests were passed they were taken into separate interrogation rooms. So police first wanted to speak with Tyler. They wanted to get Tyler's story. And that is when Tyler told them, quote, I decided to run away. Me and Boston again, Stephen, decided that we didn't want to live there anymore, so we decided to just go down to San Francisco together. I was a little upset just because my mom, she wanted me to talk to a detective about something that Boston did that he didn't, and I didn't want to talk to them, 
end quote. Now, during the first part of the interview, Tyler makes no mention of her mom's murder. She basically said everything but the fact that her mother had been brutally stabbed and killed. She says that she ran away. She loves Boston. She doesn't like her mom. Everything other than what had actually happened to Joanne. However, after Taylor gave her whole I ran away bit, police then told her that that was not the real reason that she was arrested and that police were actually arresting her for Joanne's murder. Now, immediately upon hearing this, Tyler breaks into hysterics. She claims that there's no way her mom's dead. There's no way. That's not true. Don't say that. However, police claimed that during all of the hysteria that Tyler was trying to perform, there was not one single tear. Now, right after this, police told Tyler that this was her one opportunity to tell them what was going on, tell them what happened, and help herself in this situation. However, immediately, Tyler told police that she wanted an attorney. So now with Tyler's interview being done, police then move on to Stephen. And this conversation lasts less than six minutes because Stephen very quickly asked for a lawyer. So both Tyler and Stephen are not speaking to authorities and they are sent to jail for the night. Now, the question here was the police were trying to figure out if they were going to try Tyler as an adult. Now, the question that police were trying to figure out now was, were they going to try Tyler as an adult? They definitely felt confident in having enough evidence to try Stephen for first-degree murder since he was over the age of 18. He was obviously going to be tried as an adult, but Tyler is 14 at the time. And I think it's very interesting here that the prosecution and law enforcement included Joanne's family, which is in turn Tyler's family, in this decision as well. They wanted Joanne's family's input and collectively everyone. So the prosecution, the law enforcement, and Joanne's family all agreed that they wanted to try Tyler as an adult. It was also decided that Tyler and Stephen were going to be tried in the same trial. So everything is set to go for the trial. The defense is ready. The prosecution is ready. However, right before the trial was set to start, Tyler tells her lawyer that she wants to make a deal. She told them that she would tell the police what happened in exchange for a second-degree murder charge, which is obviously a less harsh sentence than the first degree. So Tyler sits down with the DA and tells them that she was involved in her mom's death. However, she was not the one who physically carried out the murder and that that was Stephen. Tyler said it all started when Joanne gave Tyler's diary over to the police. She claimed that when her mom told her this, Tyler ran out of the room and called Stephen to tell him what her mom had done. Stephen was convinced that he was going to be arrested, so the two of them talked about committing suicide together, which is something they had discussed in the past. The two of them then decided that they would run away together on Saturday, June 13th, but they knew that they had to get rid of Joanne before doing so, because if not, she would report them missing, which would in turn stop their plan of running away together. Now, according to Tyler, Stephen claimed that he would be able to get a knife and take care of Joanne. 
Tyler claimed that later that night on the 11th, after Joanne had apologized for invading her privacy, Joanne had gone to bed, but the TV was still on, which to Tyler was a sign that her mom had been drinking. Tyler claimed that she then called Stephen to vent about her mom drinking, and that collectively they came up with the idea of killing her that night because it would be easier to do so while she was drunk. So when Stephen got off work, he parked his car in the elementary school parking lot, which was in walking distance to Joanne's home. Stephen got to the lot at 10.59 p.m. and waited until 11.56 p.m. when he got the green light text from Tyler, who told him that Joanne was still asleep. She claimed that she met Stephen outside of the home where he showed her the knife that he had claimed to have gotten from his work. Remember, he worked as a manager for the Rubio's Mexican restaurant. Now, Tyler did say that the initial plan was for the two of them to walk in together and commit this murder together. However, once it finally came time for the two of them to walk into Joanne's room, Tyler claimed that she got too nervous and told Stephen that he was going to have to be the one who did it. So Stephen walks into Joanne's room and Tyler claims that she saw Stephen practice slashing and stabbing motions before finally walking up to Joanne's bedside. Tyler claimed that she waited outside while she heard rustling. She claimed that she heard her mom yelling for Stephen to stop and yelling for Tyler to come help. Tyler claimed that she sat outside of the door covering her ears and her eyes while humming to block out the noise. She said that after some time, Stephen came out of the room holding the knife in one hand. He had blood all over his clothes and a teardrop as well as a teardrop of blood on his eye. Tyler claimed that she then went into Joanne's room while her mom was laying dead on the bed and shut the blinds and the windows and turned on the air conditioner. She then claimed that her and Stephen both walked to his car and drove to Stephen's dad's house where they burned Stephen's clothes in the fireplace. Tyler also claimed that the two of them took the knife, which was the murder weapon, and put it in a storm drain not too far from where Tyler lived, but unfortunately to this day, police were still never able to locate the knife. Now, it was because of this confession that Tyler ended up pleading guilty to second-degree murder and got a 15-year sentence. Along with that, a part of her deal is that she also had to testify against Stephen at his trial. And as you can imagine, when Stephen heard this, he definitely felt betrayed. So that was Tyler's side of the story. That is what she claimed to have happened. She helped orchestrate the murder, but she wasn't the one who physically carried out the act. But this turned into a very he said, she said case fairly quickly once this trial began, because when the trial started, Stephen actually took the stand in his own defense, something you don't see quite often. But according to Stephen, he claimed he wanted to clear his name. Now, Stephen claimed that on the afternoon of June 11th, he went over to Tyler's house when Joanne was not home. Now, again, this was something that was never a part of Tyler's side of the story. And it was during this visit that he claims that Tyler suggested that the two of them commit suicide together because Joanne had handed over the diary that she had to police and that because of that, Stephen could get arrested. 
Now, Stephen claimed that they did not ever speak about killing Joanne during this visit. He then claimed that he went to work at Rubio's at 3 p.m. that day and left when his shift was over at 10.15 p.m. Now, it should be noted that all of the work knives were accounted for. Not one knife was missing from that restaurant that Stephen worked at, which contradicts what Tyler was saying because Tyler claimed that the knife that was used used was in fact from the restaurant. Stephen claimed that after his shift at work, Tyler had called him and was venting to him about how she was upset that her mom was drinking and asked him to come over and hang out with her. According to Stephen, he told Tyler that he would be over there later and assumed that he would get over there around midnight. He wasn't really in any rush to go over there. He figured he'd get there when he gets there. However, Stephen claimed it was around midnight when Tyler called him again, this time much more frantic, and told him to come over right away. Stephen got into his car and drove over to Tyler's house where he met her outside. Stephen claimed that when he saw Tyler, she was holding a kitchen knife in her hand and had a red stain on her leg. He claimed that the first words she said to him were that she had killed her mom. Now, after this, Stephen claimed that he went into the house and went upstairs to really see what Tyler was talking about. He claimed he didn't believe her right away and wanted to see if Joanne was actually dead. However, when he walked upstairs and poked Joanne, as he said, he confirmed that she had been murdered. Stephen went on to say during his testimony that Tyler was the one who claimed that they should burn their clothes. That was not Stephen's idea. It was Tyler's and they did go back to his dad's house and burn the clothes. Now, Stephen said that when it came to his confession to Matthew, remember the friend that had told police that Stephen had confessed to the murder, according to Stephen, he was just trying to protect Tyler. There were also several different co-workers and friends of Stephen who had testified that Stephen was not a violent nor aggressive person. And again, his co-workers confirmed that there was no knife that had been taken from the restaurant at the time of the murder. However, former classmates who had went to school with Stephen had said that they remembered Stephen being quote-unquote odd and that he would come to school and talk about his knife collection which again does not mean that he would commit a murder if he had a knife collection. However, still, it's important to note for context. Now, the defense also argued that Joanne's murder was very obviously a crime of passion, and it logically made more sense, again, this was the defense's argument, it logically made more sense for Tyler to be the one who committed the actual murder since she had a lot more rage against her mom because Stephen didn't have that much anger when it came to Joanne. Now, his journal that was found in the car that said that he needed Joanne to get out of his life and he needed to get rid of Joanne in order to be with Tyler definitely says otherwise. However, again, this was just the defense's argument. 
Now, right before Tyler was set to testify against Stephen, the trial was actually put on pause because the prosecution received a very damning piece of evidence. The prosecution gets word back from the forensic lab that there was male DNA found underneath Joanne's fingernails as well as underneath her knee. Now, it was a very, very small amount of DNA that was found and not enough to make a full profile. However, Stephen also had scratches on his arm when he was arrested. So the injuries there do match up. Now, the defense obviously wasn't as so certain when this new information came to light. They had an expert witness testify that the small amount of DNA did not mean that it was Stephen and that it could have come from anyone that Joanne came into contact with. Now, after this information came forward, Tyler still took the stand. She still testified against Stephen. And while on the stand, Tyler admitted that she was, in fact, a pathologist logical liar and that she was the mastermind behind the entire operation of her mother's murder, but Stephen was the one who physically committed the act. Now, again, she did confess that her and Stephen were going to commit the murder together and that that was the original plan, but at the last minute, Tyler decided that she could not go through with it and Stephen was the one who killed her. While on the stand, Tyler claimed that she truly felt like Joanne needed to die so that her and Stephen could be together. The defense also showed that Tyler had written in her diary about how she wanted her mom to die. She said in one entry, quote, I wish she would just die somehow, some way, end quote. She even went as far as telling a friend of hers that if her mom didn't allow her to date Stephen, that she would kill her mom. Now, after four hours of deliberation, on June 15th, 2011, the jury found Stephen Culver guilty of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and is currently being held out of jail in Stockton, California. So that, you guys is the case of Joanne Witt. And I'm so curious to see what you guys have to say about it because again, this is very much a he said, she said type of case. I'm very curious to see what your thoughts are on who you most align with and what they're saying, who you believe the most. I do wanna say before giving my own personal opinion that Tyler Witt has been granted parole and was released on August 26th of 2002. So a little over a year ago. Now, again, my own personal opinion is I do believe that Joanne would more than likely still be alive had it not been for her daughter's mastermind plan behind the whole thing. Even if that means that Stephen was the one who fully solely committed the physical act, I think that however you look at this case, it is an absolute tragedy what happened to Joanne, who was quite simply just trying to protect her daughter. And I think that all in all, it's just very heartbreaking to see that this was the result of that. So I'm very interested to hear what you guys have to say about it. Let me know in the comments below. But with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesday and you're not going to want to miss it. I'll be back next week with a brand new one for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye guys.